The Beer Edge Podcast is brought to you by Arrived. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just a transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity. Your managers will love the world-class support team. Your guests will love the seamless ordering experience and probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. The pandemic has been a weird experience for everyone. Everything suddenly stopped. Things went quiet. We became trapped in our homes for months on end. Even for the most stable among us, the experience was unsettling. For my guest today, the pandemic was anomalous in an entirely different way. Newly returned to the U.S. after more than a decade living abroad, writer Joe Stang and his two children moved to a family farm in rural Missouri and then found themselves sort of stuck there as COVID hit. After years in bustling, major international metropolises, his life became about quietly homebrewing in a barn and helping his kids deal with school via Zoom. Joe is one of my favorite people in the beer world. He's a writer's writer. Clever, smart, thorough, and thoughtful. At times intense, focused, but also given to a sort of knowing humor. He's an entirely enjoyable drinking partner. And while Joe is serious about beer, dedicated to it in a way that is not just ephemeral or about the alcohol or the scene, he also knows its place and not to take it too seriously. Joe is a trained journalist, having received a proper education at one of the country's best journalism schools, Mizzou, and then trained at the Associated Press. And while his background provided him with a solid foundation on which to build his freelancing and writer career, it was his wife Kelly's career that, in a roundabout way, led to his own work as a beer journalist. Kelly has long worked as a diplomat with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, helping to promote and protect American interests abroad. And her work has taken their family to Brussels, Costa Rica, Berlin, and now Bangkok. It was his first location, Brussels, where Joe really became involved in the beer world. He developed a love of Belgian beer and began writing about it, eventually leading to his work as a co-author with Tim Webb of the excellent Good Beer Guide Belgium, now in its eighth edition. Joe would go on to write another book, Around Brussels and 80 Beers, and contribute to many magazines. He's now the managing editor of Craft Beer and Brewing. Joe was locked down in quarantine for several weeks after arriving in Bangkok, and it was late his time and very early mine when we connected via Zoom for our chat. We haven't seen each other in a couple of years, and so our conversation ran more than twice as long as I expected. So we're going to break out our conversation into two different episodes. On this first one, Joe and I talk about the experience of being a diplomatic spouse, about what it's like to return to the States after so long abroad, and how he came to contemplate and capture the essence of a tree during the pandemic. We also talk about his passion for writing, about the technical side of brewing, whether loggers and saisons will ever truly have their day, and about tradition, style, and whether the classic beer bar can survive. Here's my conversation with writer Joe Stang. So, Joe, thank you for coming on to the Beer Edge podcast. Let's start with a simple question. 
where in the world are you? Uh, Bangkok, Thailand. We just got here about five or six weeks ago. Uh, it's our, our new post and um, probably be here for three or four years. So, you know, if you're, uh, we got, like I said, Andy, we got a, we got a guest bedroom ready for you whenever you're. And I, I cannot wait. Uh, listeners will not know this, but Joe and I have been friends for quite some time. And I have actually had the joy of visiting him in one of these posting houses in Berlin uh, with my now wife. And that was a, that was a great trip and got to drink some drink at some of or some of uh, Joe's favorite local establishments. So I cannot wait to get you some time there in Bangkok and then come visit as well. Um, but you mentioned diplomatic posting. I know you are not a diplomat. So where in the family does that run? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so my wife, Kelly, works for the Foreign Agricultural Service. And so she is uh, she's with the Foreign Service, but it's with the USDA agriculture. And her job is to promote uh, U.S. food and drink overseas. Um, so she works on on that. And that includes U.S. craft beer, actually. Um, but almonds and cranberries and, and all kinds of things like that, too. Wine. And obviously, we're, we're interested in the craft beer side of it. But I know she, she was doing that in Berlin as well. She was hosting, you know, basically craft beer events and helping promote American craft beer there. Yeah, she was. Yeah, it's a kind of a one spot where our job's kind of neatly overlap. Well, I, I don't promote, I don't promote us craft beer, but you know, <laughs> uh, not on purpose anyway. Right. Right. Um, and so you and the whole family are there in Bangkok. How was that transition? You know, and you've now done this, I think it's just the fourth posting that you have, you've had, I know you've been in Costa Rica, you've been in Brussels, you've been in Berlin, and I think this is now Bangkok. So yeah, how is right. this yep. one's this one's been a little different than the other ones? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's well, it's our first Asian post, obviously. Um, so there's a level of exoticism here that it wasn't in the others necessarily. Um, our second tropical, not very beery post, I guess. Whereas you know, Brussels and Berlin obviously were like great places to be for for a beer writer or for somebody who just loves to drink beer. Uh, Brussels is the reason I started beer writing. So, and that was our first, our first spot. Um, so there's going to be some adaptation of that, but, um, but it's different. I, when we got to Costa Rica, there were no, uh, no breweries, zero, um, other than the national monopoly there. And, um, then while we were there one by one, little, little, you know, clandestine outfits started to open up and, and get legit. Um, and now it's the scene there is blown up like everywhere else. And so here we're getting to a scene that's already blown up to some degree, but every country is a bit different. And um, here there are still uh, laws that make it really difficult to open a brewery. There's, there's basically a duopoly here, two very large beer companies that dominate the market. And to open a brewery, you have to be huge already. So it's impossible basically to get a license. Um, Yet there still are little Thai craft breweries somehow, different ways. Some of them are maybe not fully legal. Um, I think that there's one place that's making like a lot of, um, you know, ready to drink cocktails and wine coolers and things. And so they already make enough booze that they can also make some beer. Um, then there's a lot of, um, you know, former home brewers or accomplished brewers who are having the beer brewed in Vietnam or, or, or Cambodia. Uh, places like that and having it imported in so that's an interesting way to go about it too and I, i'm not sure how many of it how much of it yet 
uh, I haven't been able, I mean, like I've only been in here a month, right? a month, right? So I haven't been able to really get out and get to know the sea much, but some of it is still pretty clandestine from the looks of it, which is, which is fun too. Let's say, is that sort of, a, I mean, having some, having had some experience with that in Costa Rica, that's, I mean, as opposed to the kind of rigidity of the American and, and maybe even some of the European countries, is there some excitement to that? Kind of like this sort of, uh, as you said, clandestine, like sort of operations, you know, that are kind of, you know, just sort of seeing what kind of rudimentary approaches they're taking or how they're making it work. Yeah. And, you know, I would say in the, for, just to com- contrast it with Costa Rica again, in those early days, uh, it was hard for them to get good ingredients. It wasn't that easy for them to get the best information about, uh, about what to do and get the equipment was hard too. The climate was pretty unforgiving. And, and I'm just, so many things are different now. Um, where all this information is at your fingertips, you know, um, you know, we produce a magazine that is devoted to here's how you brew. Uh, and there's so much information out there that's available. If you can access it, the ingredients are way more globally available than they used to be. I think white labs has a, has a center in like a distribution center in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm looking at there's five or six homebrew shops in Bangkok and they're getting Vireman and they're getting, you know, Omega yeast. And like, it's just like, this is, this is wild. Like they can get whatever they want here if they have the money. This is, so yeah, this that was going to totally be different. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions. Cause I noted when you had gone back, you know, you had been in your Berlin post and then, you know, before pandemic had been moved back to Missouri where you're actually from and, and you were staying with, you know, there on a farm with family, you, you know, your Instagram and your posts were a lot of, here's me holding beer sitting in the barn or in a garage homebrewing. And I was wondering, you know, especially with your work with the magazine, which is, you know, so focused on, on, on sort of building and recreating recipes and, and really digging into that technical side of brewing. Um, I was wondering, how are you going to keep that up abroad? And apparently it's now, it's now global. You can homebrew and now is homebrewing legal there. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem is when you sell it. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think there's any problem. I mean, there's enough homebrew shops here. It must be legal. Um, I, I wouldn't be that worried about it anyway. I'm a diplomat. So yeah. when, and when I say <laughs> diplomatic immunity, I have to say with a South African accent, like from Lethal Weapon 2. Anyways, um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to homebrewing here a lot, actually. I can't wait till my equipment gets here. Um, particularly because a lot of the crap here is very, exp- very expensive. And um we can afford it and it's worth it to us, but at the same time, like, it's kind of like hurts a little bit anyway, every time. <laughs> and uh, just like, just on principle. Um, so I'm looking forward to sort of making larger quantities and having it on draft at home and or bottling it or something, having more. And so what limited export, I know there, you were first of all on a quarantine for a couple of weeks, you know, basically in a hotel, not able to go anywhere, having to do routine testing. Then there's now you've sort of arrived in the middle of a lockdown, which is not the American version of a lockdown where we just kind of still all go out and do whatever the heck we want. It's a bit of different, different experience there. I take it. The, um, the lockdown, I think hit just before we got here. Um, and it was because the numbers were getting higher and higher. And then the lockdown here is all the restaurants shut. Uh, curfew is uh, 9 p.m., which means you can't get anything after 8 p.m. and you need to get home. 
um, no, um, I'm, I actually don't know if this is a normal thing here. I think it may be a normal thing, but you, you can only buy beer from, I think, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then from 5 p.m. till close, which is 8 p.m. now. So um, you have to know your windows of when you can buy beer. <laughs> um, but what you can do during the lockdown is order food. And we do a lot of ordering food. You can go to the grocery store. That's what I do for fun. Go to the grocery <laughs> store. Um, you know, you can go to the, I don't know, go for walks, take taxis around and look at stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a proper lockdown in that there's a curfew. Um, the restaurants are totally closed. Bars are totally closed. Restaurants start to open tomorrow. Bars, it's going to be a little while longer. So during, so you, when did you move back to Missouri from Berlin? Two years ago. And at that point, how long had you been abroad, living abroad? 13 years. Uh, we did four in Brussels, four in Costa Rica, and five in Berlin. How was that transition for you? I mean, kids are, you know, you, you know we talk about our kids, but like the kids are reasonably flexible. They can kind of bounce back to band situation. How about for you as someone who had obviously grown up in the States, but had been gone for, you know, a substantial portion of your adult life? What was that transition like? I didn't, I didn't want to come back to the States. Um, we get kind of spoiled living overseas. We get pretty good housing and there's easy travel adventures uh, to wherever you happen to be near. Um, I was able to, you know, I mean, make a living by, well, I'm talking about beer writing. So maybe that's an exaggeration to say make a living. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was what I would, what I did. And, and then I, I wasn't sure what would happen coming back to the States. So I was, <clears throat> Uh, very happy when I got the job with Crappy and Brewing, because um, then it was like, wow, I'm actually going to be able to do this full time, what I love doing, and, and get a steady pay. That's going to be perfect. And I was also very happy about being within an hour of Bush Stadium in St. Louis, and then also very happy about our kids being in an American school for a couple of years. And it's actually the same school that Kelly went to mm-hmm. and that to that her dad went to in this oh, wow. little small town. Uh, and it's a, it genuinely like a really good little public school in a small town. Um, so that was all. And plus like getting to live on a farm, that was really cool too. So it was like, okay, I can see how this, how this is going to work out, you know, even if it's just temporary. Um, and thankfully also I get along really well with my in-laws. They're awesome. So that was, that was cool too. And then also just to sort of like sweeten the deal. My father-in-law bought this ancient like nineties era Sabco brewing system, brew magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which still still works great, and so I got that thing working with his help, and um, and so I was on that thing at least once a month, and that during the pandemic that was the best. And we had you know, we put it in a tap wall with four taps, and <laughs> we're just just brewing a lot of beer and drinking a lot of beer. Um, we had happy hour, you know, every day at like five o'clock. We like whatever we do, we quit. <laughs> And the kids too come up to the to the machine shed where we had a bar, have some you know eat tortilla chips and yeah, <laughs> bad 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 Cheetos and stuff and drink uh, have a couple beers and it was really uh, that kept us sane. It doesn't sound like a, a bad way. It doesn't sound like a bad way to sort of run through the pandemic. Um, but one of the other things I noted just just sort of following you on social media was you seem to have 
taken a shine to one particular tree on the property. And there are just a lot of, you know, just sort of almost like, it's almost like Monet with his studies, just, you know, just in all seasons with all different uh, <laughs> backgrounds in terms of, you know, watching the wheat come up or, or, or get harvested. What, what, was, what was it about this tree? I have no idea, man. It was just like in this good spot. I didn't even know what kind of tree it was until John Hall asked me. It's like, uh, yeah, I should know that. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it turned out it's a sugar maple. Um, and it was, it's just in this cool spot where there is, um, you know, the country road is back there and the, the soybean field is right there, which, which, uh, a few more recent ones became winter wheat. Um, and so it was just the perfect spot to watch the seasons. Um, and so every time also partly I was getting up really early, uh, a lot of mornings to work. And so, um, sunrise was the perfect time to, to catch that tree. So that was a neat way to sort of mark the seasons. And, and I didn't, I mean, I just thought I was going to take one picture of a tree and then I just kept taking pictures of the tree and every now and then it was like, yeah, that's good enough for the feed. And so I'd <laughs> add one on there. I think I have enough for a calendar. I should do a calendar. I, I really think you should. It was, I would buy it because it was, it was a very sort of reassuring moment of Zen whenever that would pop up in the feed and you would just sort of see it and you just note the transition of time. And, and, you know, obviously things basically felt like they stood still in our lives for so long that it was nice to sort of see some part of the outside world continuing to evolve and continuing to move on. So I fully support the calendar idea. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. It's cool. It was also a nice way to break up like all the fried food and barbecue and beer pictures. <laughs> there was a lot of barbecue. I like those as well. Um, one of the things we sort of skipped over here, and for those who are listening who don't know, your background is as a trained journalist, both in education and in practice. So can you walk us through a little bit about, you know, about your, you know, you didn't always just write about beer. So talk to us about your career. Yeah, um, I went to journalism school at, uh, at Mizzou, at the University of Missouri, the world's oldest and finest school of journalism. <laughs> uh, we have to say that. Yes, I know. Um, um, and um, I went to work for the Associated Press uh, out of college and worked um, there in, in the state capital in Jeff City and then in St. Louis for a while and um, thought I was just going to stay with them forever. And, and, uh, I, and I loved it. It was great. Um, and then met Kelly and I also was always thinking that I would go to grad school at some point. Um, she wanted to go to work in DC for the USDA. And I'm like, well, you know, I also, I wanted to go to grad school. So maybe I could go to grad school there. So that's, that's when I went to graduate school at American university. Um, made some good friends there. I called them my $40,000 friends. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I've used that degree other than it definitely like gave me perspective and shaped my, my mindset. I got mm -hmm. a degree in international, international communications, basically international relations, kind of a media and ethics focus. Um, and then, yeah, worked for a nonprofit called the International Center for Journalists for a while. So I was kind of back in journalism, but mostly more nonprofit world type stuff. Um, and then along that during that time she got into the foreign service and eventually it was time to go overseas so at some point i had to like subvert my ego that i wasn't going to be the foreign war correspondent and and take her along with me it was going to be the other way around and once i realized how cool that was yeah like i will still get to write uh, i will still get to go on adventures um and there's this is this is like gonna be great so 
took me a while to figure that out, but once I figured it out, it was cool. Um, and then first post being Brussels, I did not want to write about beer. Um, people kept telling me I should, cause I loved beer. And, um, but I remembered the sports writers who I used to work with at the AP and they were guys who used to love sports <laughs> and you could just see like it was dead in their eyes. Like just the love was gone. And uh, when I I'd cover the Cardinals a few times just to help out. And I was like, so excited. I was like, this is awesome. This is the best thing ever. And these guys are like, yeah, whatever. And so I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want that to happen to me <laughs> with beer. So, um, but it, eventually I just like my, I had some, freelance editing work that dried up and I just had to do something. So I started pitching articles and I started, and it was just like, Oh, I can sell these. This is cool. I started making money at like a little bit of money at it. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Like I'm just going to do this, I guess. And, and, um, and I, it is still, thankfully it's super fun. It's super fun. I think it's the alcohol. I think that really helps a lot. It does. It really does. Interest. It yeah. really does. So the AP is a, the AP is a whole thing. It's a different, it's a dip for those who don't really understand or don't know it's not your traditional news organization in the sense of, of what maybe we're more familiar with, um, uh, with the times or the, the post or, you know, wherever you're at the Chicago Tribune or wherever you happen to be, it is a, it's almost like a backbone of American journalism. It really provides besides feeding a lot of content and a lot of stories to those larger organizations that either help provide context or frankly, you know, more these days just get run you know, full tilt with just a, maybe a change in the, in the, you know, Associated Press versus, you know, the Atlanta Journal Constitution in terms of the byline. Um, but it also is kind of a different type of writing than you find maybe in, in other newspapers. So how, how did you find that sort of style and how do you think your own writing style has evolved from that? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so you, you have to write fast with the AP. Um, and it's very much, normally it's very classic uh, inverted pyramid style where you get the, the important stuff up top and gradually less important stuff as you get further into the article because you, the news, you never know how much space whatever newspaper that's going to run the story is going to have. So they want to, you want to make it easy for them to cut. That's the whole purpose of that. And also to you know, grab attention at the beginning, of course. Um, so I think I still like to grab people's attention at the beginning if I can, um, but I've gradually gotten to indulge more in a feature type writing, um, which I really enjoy more narrative style. What I really like is letting people talk um, in my stories and just letting them say it when I can get away with that. Um, just like when you're listening to a good NPR piece, I, I enjoy that. Um, so I, I'm, in a way I'm not writing anything like I used to, but in another way, that still comes in really handy when we're on deadline. We need to do things quickly, but not too shoddily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also there's a lot to be said for being a hack sometimes for, you know, just getting the work done. And, um, and I, I, I appreciate when people, I'd much rather have work, you know, submitted more or less on deadline than to have these beautifully long pieces that, you know, we don't have room for and it's too late. And, you know, it's just sort of. This is, this is largely the reason I don't write for you, I think, because that is exactly what I would provide. <laughs> You're like, okay, you want, you need 2000 words. Here's 8,000. I don't think you should cut any of it. Also yeah. it's two weeks late. Actually, you know, it's funny about that. The, the um, length is way more flexible than I realized. And don't tell any of our writers this, but the deadline is also pretty flexible. Oh, 
Uh, we don't Dangerous. tell them that because, you know, they, we don't want them to all submit it late at the same time. But um, the length is tricky because as freelance writers, um, they need to value their work. And um, at the same time, they need to value their time. So the reality is if they write long, there's a good chance we can use it. Um, but we can't pay more than we've already right. agreed to pay. Right. So right. Uh, what I, what I say a lot of times is like, you know, write 1200 words, but that's flexible. If as long as it's good, it can go short or long, but deep, deep down, I'm like hoping it's long. Yeah. Um, but um, I can't, you know, but I, what I usually say is because I did this too, I preferred to write long. It was easier for me to write long. Yeah. Writing short so, is one of the hardest things to do. I still write crazy long. I still yep. write super long and I can get away with it now. Um, but um, I, what I tell the writers is don't spend your precious time cutting an article just for the sake of cutting it. If you write long, send it. Mm -hmm. so. so over the years you've written and been involved with a number of beer publications and that ranges you know, from draft to beer advocates and many others, they're all gone. You know, there we're at a point now where, you know, I I don't know if we're at a, a great point in beer journalism history or at the really lowest point. Um, but it, you know, a lot of sort of the the early and and longstanding brands, you know, whether it's all about beer or draft or beer advocate magazine or all the Bruce papers, um, you know, and then there's you know, dozens upon dozens of local you know, you know, Pacific Northwest brewing, you know, you know, beer and like all these other publications that have just gone away either through, you know, this is, and this is the question, is it through mismanagement? Is it through lack of consumer interest? And we've, we had, you know, briefly corresponded on this recently, but what is your 30,000 foot view of the state of, of just American beer journalism at this point? Well, I think good journalism is good journalism no matter what field it's in or what niche it's in. Um, but whatever your, you know, good writing is good writing. And, but just because you have good journalism or you have good writing, it doesn't mean that there's a market for it. It doesn't mean you have a place to sell. It doesn't mean you have a product. So I, I'm not a business person. Um, I don't really have a very good head for that stuff. I mean, we, you know, we, in writing about uh, breweries and brewers, we occasionally meet those savants who can, run a business and, you know, run the, the brew house and, and make great beers and come up with recipes and do all these things. I think they're actually really way rarer than they, you know, yeah, than I agree than they would let on. Um, but I'm not one of those people. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm the magazine equivalent of on the brew deck. And um, so I, I loved writing for draft. And I love that magazine. I think it was just, and I like writing for beer drinkers. I like writing for beer consumers. And I think there ought to be like in a perfect world that would exist. But if people don't buy it, if people don't want to advertise in it, then it's not going to work. It's not a product. So what's been, what's really interesting. And, and, you know, there still are besides, because Zymergy is a little bit of a special case because it's, you know, it's the Homebrewers Association. Uh, that's, you know, th those members are getting that magazine. So that's different. Right. But BY BYO still exists. It's, it's pretty different than what we do. But we, 
that craft beer and brewing were writing basically for professional brewers. And now that there are more than 9,000 of them in the United States and all the people that work for them, you can do that. And there's still tens of thousands. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's still hundreds of thousands of home brewers. I, st- I hope there are that many still. Um, and they don't mind being treated as a professional audience. They, there is no limit to how technical you can get with most home brewers. We try not to forget the beginners um, because we were all, I still feel like I'm a beginner <laughs> some, some days. Uh, but, you know, you want to be able to not forget those extract brewers who just got something for Christmas, you know, and are, and are going to get their feet wet with it. But at the same time, there's so much information available and the people find their way to it quickly once they realize what they want to do that, that to hold back and dumb things down doesn't make any sense for that kind of niche technical hobby or profession. So, um, so that is a product as a business that works somehow. And I have a ton of respect for people who can um, make media work right now in whatever niche or respect and make it make money. I just think it's, it's uh, a special kind of, Uh, way of looking at things to make that work so i cannot recommend arrived enough killer customer support affordable ability to start tabs without holding cards keeps track of ounces sold for state reporting two different ways to report tips the list goes on it's amazing says tracy bardigan of firemaker brewing in atlanta do you think that there is a an actual consumer market for for beer writing or content about beer that's outside of that, you know, the professional, the you know, professional working brewer class and, you know, home brewers, because these, those two categories have always been the ones that have demonstrated over time that they are a paying market. You look at Amazon's top books about beer for the last decade or 20 years, and you're going to see of that top 10 consistently, eight of those or nine of those are probably home brewing books. Uh, home brewers have massive conventions. They are a voracious, you know, they're voracious readers. They want content. They want information. And the magazines you mentioned are largely all home brewing or brewing magazines, you know, be, but we look at, you know, whether it's other consumer goods, let alone ones that are similarly situated, like spirits or cigars or, you know, for adult product, you know, wine, things like that. They have consumer publications and they have consumer apps and they have websites that are dedicated to it. But it seems like at this point, we're down to almost a handful of publications. And as we discussed the other night, I'm not, as you said, like, I'm not at all clear that there is that consumer market that is willing to both consume the the content, but let alone pay for it. Yeah, I mean, there is, um, but the content doesn't look like it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, Untapped is a good example. Yep. Tap, I'm tapped is doing, you know, I assume they're making money. Um, and a lot of people use it and, and they, people give their eyeball time to it. So, um, but then as far as like narrative type features about beer, you know, where do, where do those end up? Um, you know, John's doing good stuff in wine enthusiasts, you know, wine enthusiasts is there. Um, why not look beyond just beer, beer mm-hmm. uh, people? to to because people who are interested in good food and good drink you know maybe are also interested in good beer too to an extent um good beer hunting is an interesting case i think in a way they 
they, they do a ton of great content. Um, and in a way, they're also kind of having it both ways, like we are. Like they're kind of writing for the industry, but also for serious beer enthusiasts who want to know more. Um, so maybe that's how you do it. You just have to challenge people a little bit more instead of, you know, I think it was um, Jeff Allworth's blog the other day, yesterday, maybe, I don't know, um, mentioned Michael Jackson writing in the early days. And basically, I can't remember how he said it, but basically he was writing, everybody was a beginner back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, the thing is, there's still beginners all the time, right? I mean, people are, there still have to be people who are new to beer. Yeah. And yet, and yet everybody's an expert and everybody's, you know, this, the, the learning curve is weird now. I don't know whether we should say it's steep or, or you climb it quickly or, or what, but, um, and the proliferation of tap rooms has something to do with that too, where you can go in and get an immediate education. Um, yeah. Even if it's, even if it's the same education at every tap room, it seems like, but yeah. Cause I, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess beer bars were a very specialized kind of niche place where drinkers of a certain persuasion or a certain level of experience would head and, and almost self cloister uh, in the, in those, in the, in those kind of revered spaces, but they were not necessarily that welcoming or that understanding for a member of the public. I think if you were somebody who was just a casual beer drinker and you walked into one of these great beer bars that probably maybe have a little bit of information on a menu, but really it's just a sea of 40 or 60 taps or something like that. And you're, it's, I, I would, you know, they must feel like I feel when I go to a fancy restaurant and I'm handed a, a 30 page wine list. And I'm sure I understand some varietals and I maybe even know the names of some producers, but I don't know what's a good value. I don't know what I'm, what I probably would like or wouldn't like versus the tap rooms. You go in there and, and most places now have you know, they'll have signs up of some form saying, here's, you know, here's the 20 beers or 10 beers we have on tap and a one or two line description along with the style. So, you know, for someone who just doesn't know very much, they can walk in, just glance up at the ceiling or the chalkboard and probably walk away, you know, feel reasonably confident. Oh, this one has, you know, has raspberry, you know, to it. Oh, I like fruit. I, that's probably safe as, and you don't worry that you may end up with something incredibly bitter or overly sour or, just something that you know is or roasted or some flavor that you might not want. Yeah, and I and I feel like for the most part, um, a brewery tap room is somewhere you can go in and ask lots of dumb questions. Yep. And and um, and I, I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And and usually they're pretty patient and and usually know their stuff. And and um, I think it's a pretty friendly place to get that education. I, maybe there's something because I really. Am, um, I can't remember if we've had this conversation before, Andy, but I'm really worried about what's going to happen to those kind of classic beer bars. Yep. I love them, man. And yep. I don't want them to go away. You know, the places with 50 taps or like crazy long bottle lists. And um, as long as they got the atmosphere and, you know, lots of choices and they know what they're talking about, know what they're doing. Those places are just really special. Maybe those places can actually learn something from the tap rooms, you know, um, <clears throat> doesn't have to be quite so much. I feel like and this is an, a thought that, or this is a topic I think most, you know, not most, but a lot of beer writers of, you know, with some experience or some age, you know, that we have uh, at this have, have some concerns because we all cut our teeth kind of visiting these, these, you know, um, these kind of, you know, dens of, of, 
of classic beer. And, and we would use these to, to learn and, and educate ourselves. And really there were the places to go if you wanted great beer, but now obviously tap rooms are, are plentiful almost everywhere around this country with almost 9,000 of them, as opposed to the, every city had one or maybe two, if you're lucky, great beer bars, those places feel like a different era. I mean, I, I was so sad recently to, you know, John Hall played a nasty trick on me uh, in the last two months where he sent me a text out of the blue asking if I wanted to go to Denver for the closing of Falling Rock. And I, and I desperately did, but I've got very young kids and that was going to be a challenge. Plus pandemic at that point, it started to lift a little bit. So he, he mentioned it casually and then never, never brought it up again. So I thought he was, I thought he was <laughs> pulling, I thought he was, he was full of, full of it. But uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm having a conference call with him about some editorial stuff we're doing. And then, you know, two hours, you know, he's cool as a cucumber and two hours later up pops on my phone, uh, uh, the smiling faces of Joe uh, Todd from Beer Advocate, and then a shit-eating grin of my partner John, uh, and I <laughs> kicked myself for not not getting out there because, like you, I have a love of Falling Rock. I have a love of these classic beer bars. But you talk to Chris Black, the former proprietor of, the, of of Falling Rock, and he will tell you he will have nothing but nasty things to say about a lot of the local brewery tap rooms because he and a lot of others genuinely feel like they, and probably truthfully so that they helped build American craft beer. And then, you know, these breweries by putting that, you know, giving, you know, buying kegs from, from upstart new places, but then it kind of turned and they were sort of left in the dust and they kind of feel like these old hallowed halls that are rarely explored these days. And they, they feel antiquated. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't, um, I know that he was in an expensive part of town by the ballpark too. Yeah. So there's a lot of other equations the, that are involved there. And, and um, um, to all of us who would go there once or twice a year for GABF or whatever, um, it was an important institution, but you need locals to go there yep. and keep going there. And you yep. need all, in, in, there's so many great local breweries and you need all of them to want to be there too. Uh, so there's a lot going on. You know, this is one bar, but, but uh, there's, it was interesting to, to know that situation. And then, for example, go up to Fort Collins the tap and handle is a really great beer bar. It's still, mm-hmm. I think they have 40, 50 taps and they're doing, still doing banging business there. Yeah. Amazing selection. Um, go to somewhere like DC where you have blue, you know, uh, not blue Jack church key mm-hmm. and, and the shelter and the places that the neighborhood restaurant group is, is running. that are just the world class. Um, so there are still great beer bars and they're still doing well. Um, but I think the run of the mill ones are going to, maybe go by the wayside it's going to be interesting to see what happens to these places as uh as we get out of the pandemic eventually mm-hmm. and um they can really find their legs again some of the some of the beer bars i've been to um anecdotally in the past say the past you know six eight months as the draft beer was coming back are not what they used to be mm-hmm. selection wise and i don't yeah. know how much of that yeah I, I i don't know how much that is sort of the the breweries the more bigger regional breweries and things that were ready or already there, they've got the sales reps are in there and how much of it is the smaller breweries who are counting on that, their own tap room to make their money don't care anymore about being in those bars or, or it's just the distributors aren't getting, aren't making that connection yet. Yeah, I think, I think the, I, the bigger problem I think is that, and I, I just went to a, a place here in Boston. It was just one of, one of the best beer bars in the city or used to be, it's called deep Ellum. It 
closed during real early during pandemic, but it transitioned to a sister identity. Essentially, they've, it's called Lone Star Taco Bar uh, is another concept that the same group owns. So they basically transitioned it. So you walk in there and it, it is essentially the same place, same space, same taps, but where they might have had 30 or so taps before, they now are you know focused on 10. And I think a lot of that is they just don't have the pull. They don't have the consumers coming in and drinking the quantity that they did to justify having beer that sits, you know, 40 kegs that sit or 40 half barrels or, or six stills that sit for weeks on end because they can't, they can't run through them anymore. Um, so yeah, the places with those massive tap lines, we'll see, we'll see how they do, but um, you know, but then the breweries, the brewery tap rooms, like you said, you know, they do seem to be pulling that business. So they, you know, I just don't know what the future looks like for some of these older school beer bars. We've seen places like in DC, you know, Brick Skeller from many, many moons ago closed and, um, mm. you know, and, and RFD and just other, other places in Toronado and San Diego. We'll see eventually what happens across the country. But then there are folks like Michael at Hopleaf in Chicago who seem to still, you know, have the passion for it, still innovating, still changing, and still, you know, has the great respect of that local community uh, and and the support of, like you're saying, of locals. Yeah, seems like the map room is still going strong up there mm-hmm. too. I think so. Yeah, but I, it's when, a- I'm kicking myself because I my one of my uh, I really wanted to get up Chicago those two years I was in the Midwest and and um, especially wanted to get to Dovetail and didn't didn't. Oh, so you you have get not, up there? You've not been. It's, I've not been to Dovetail. Yeah, my friend, my friend, you would be, you would be plenty pleased. It is like one of the. I am very fortunate living here in Boston because we have Notch, which you know for us is largely the same thing. The two of them are have that same feel where it's just people doing classic styles really well and almost with a just a, like a, a a carefree attitude about it. Like no, just logger is life. This is what we. This is, we wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't dream of doing anything but this and doing it exactly how it needs to be done, taking all of the time in the world for it, even if it doesn't make financial sense, because uh, this is just what we are. And I don't know that we have room for hundreds or thousands of breweries of that of that stripe, but places like Dovetail and Notch are, so hopefully you'll, hopefully you'll get back to Chicago at some point. Might be, might be a little oh, while, well. but uh, they, they, Dovetail is amazing stuff. Um, but along those lines, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what is sort of the value of tradition and, and sort of what, why are you attracted to it? Because I think we both have a similar vein where we love and revere and respect classic styles done really well. And I think both of us probably are passionate about innovation. And, and though I think we can be a little bit curmudgeonly at times about things, or I know I certainly can, whether it's hazies or, or something else, but you know, the classics, you know, whether it's a really old beer bar or just old bar in the Czech Republic or places like Dovetail executing at a high, you know, high degree of quality, just these classic old styles. What, what is it about sort of this old history or this tradition that attracts you? Yeah. So part, partly, um, I think you were hitting on something there where we're, you know, also, uh, passionate about innovation and things. Um, I, I feel like my role anyway, I don't want to speak for other people is partly Socratic where you can really play both sides. Um, so we can be the curmudgeon when that's interesting. And then 
Um, I also partly make my living writing about how to brew with pretzels mm-hmm. in your imperial stout, or <laughs> how to how to work with marshmallow, and like so. And that's really fun. Like from from a just completely silly and and uh, hedonistic and and also a technical standpoint, that those things are fun too. But I absolutely love drinking traditional beer and writing about traditional beer and digging into those stories. Um, I think they're important to our uh, culture, um, not just to beer drinking culture, but to Western culture. Um, and that is sort of a vein of um, a folk culture that really interests me. Some people are into, you know, I, I like bluegrass music too, but some people are into, you know, handcrafted things and you know this, I mean, that's our vein of that knowledge beer and it's there's a um shared history there uh there's shared rituals there there are um still lost semblances of community there um lost to us in other facets of life but not when you go for example to a, a Zeugel brewery in Windisch Eschenbach and you're sharing tables with people and the beer was brewed at a shared brewery and you know it's totally and you're paying less than two euros for a half liter of beer it's and you you may be in the basement you know you might be in the basement of someone's house just being yeah, ser- yeah. served by their served by their family and there might be four tables you know I, I've been there yeah. it's an amazing experience, but one that I, I'm not sure is, you know, is caught on popularly. You know, it, I feel like it, especially Zeugel beer was one from like years ago that kind of was hot among people like ourselves who are, who love and, and cherish that tradition, but it just seems such, it's also, it, it, it just seems so ridiculous almost in, in a modern era. It just seems so out of place, but is still yeah. so wonderful to experience. I think also there's um, very positive associations there for me where the reality is a good chunk of the best beer I've ever had has been produced in some in traditional ways. So while I'm fascinated with the American brewing scene and the ways that brewers are pushing the envelope and finding new ways to do things and, and, um, the way you can make a very convincing Pilsner with a single infusion mash uh, and well-modified malt and, and it can still taste very, very good. The reality is when I lived in Germany, I would find beers that I thought were transcendent and I would decide to go figure out how they were brewed. And so I would eventually get to visit the brewery and I would ask questions and more often than not, they were doing the decoction. Okay, is this a coincidence? I don't think so. Um, it, maybe it's not the actual process of the decoction necessarily. Maybe it's the whole dedication to doing things uh, this old way or the traditional way. I don't know. But I think that there is, um, in a lot of the traditional brewing, there's uh, an incredible attention to detail and doing everything just so. That you also see with the very best sort of innovative brewers where everything has to be just right. And those, that's, that's the way to make great beer. You have to pay attention to every little detail. Um, so f- for me with traditional beer, it's very much, it's like when you have a favorite type of beer glass, because you've had so much great beer out of that kind of glass. For me, I'm very attracted to traditional beer. I mean, I wrote about Belgian, I still write about Belgian beer 
I love Belgian beer very much just, and I love lager too. And um, I don't know how you could be in love with Belgian beer and German beer and Czech beer and not, not be completely fascinated with the whole idea of traditional beer. Yeah. British Cascale too. I mean, so um, it's been really fun for me to get to know American craft beer again the past couple of years. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I, I was always wondering when you were to head back to the States, what you would make of just the insanity that is sort of American craft beer, as opposed to, you know, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but just coming from a place where there were such traditions in terms of Belgium and and then in Berlin, though, frankly, there was, there was innovation going on in, in Berlin, certainly while you were there and, and moving forward, but just, it feels like the U S is a very different animal when it comes to, to all of that. And it's just gone in typical American excess to some ridiculous heights. But uh, one of the things that, you know, I just sort of wanted to ask you about was, you know, what is, you know, what is your impression of the impact that American craft beer and American craft brewers has had around the world? You've now lived in multiple different spaces and have gotten to experience that, um, you know, firsthand, you know, what, what has that impact been? That's it's, uh, incalculable um to to come to a place like thailand and um find a great beer at the local supermarket it's a pale ale um it costs about three bucks it's a half liter can um i'm not going to remember the name of it right now unfortunately but it just won uh it was a country winner in the world beer awards it's a very uh canned fruit cocktail hop juicy pale ale but it's bitter and crisp enough that you can really, you can really drink it. Um, so th- I couldn't imagine finding a beer like that maybe 10 years ago. Um, the, it's, it's really hard to underestimate the influence of American craft beer on independent brewing around the world. And even in the really entrenched traditional brewing cultures like Belgium and Germany, um, they take ideas and adopt them and meld them with their, with their own traditions and, and often get quite cool new things. Um, yeah. And then you develop, there's a whole class of, of European craft breweries that are basically American craft breweries. They just happen to be in European countries. Occasionally they'll remember what country they're from and do something really interesting. Um, but otherwise they're often doing, you know, pastry stouts and, and, hazy IPAs and doing them pretty well. Um, so I, I, I just know that I, I think the only thing you can compare it to is when, you know, Germans fanned out around the world in the late 19th century um, and made lager everywhere. I, I'm, um, maybe I, I don't know that it'll ever be on that large of a scale again, but, but I think that in terms of the vectors of influence, but vectors of influence are always multi-directional, right? So it's never a one-way, never a one-way road. It always, U.S. brewers are constantly absorbing ideas from other places and, and using them too. So, do you have any concerns that sort of the exporting of American craft beer will negatively impact some of those traditions that both you and I love in these in the countries that have kind of helped develop, you know, global the global beer scene? I don't know if my idea on this is very. I think it may be a little radical, but. Um, I'm a big believer in cultural fusion. I think cultural fusion makes us stronger. I think anytime you're afraid of ideas, um, you're you're gonna you're gonna be weaker as a people. 
Um, and I think we see that with food all the time. Um, I don't believe in cultural appropriation when it comes to food. It's easy for me to say that I'm a white dude, but you know, from like middle America, but I think the, you know, most of the best food I've ever had has been some mashup of different cultures um, and people taking ideas and cramming them together and, and um, being a believer in the free marketplace of ideas in general. I don't see how he couldn't also apply that to, to fruit, food and to brewing, which is food, which is cooking. So um, German lager traditions are not going away. The biggest threat to German lager brewing traditions is German scientists who will say decoction isn't necessary and, oh, we don't have to do a multi-step mash anymore, although they still basically all do it. Um, Czech brewers aren't going to stop doing decoctions. Um, Belgian brewers aren't going to stop doing spontaneous fermentation and elaborate multi-step mashes. And, um, you know, some of them might, a couple might play around with clean American yeasts. But for the most part, the yeasts are going to be expressive. They're going to keep bottle conditioning or keg conditioning. You know, um, Cascale is not going to go away, thank goodness. So I, I'm not worried, um, but it does take some attention from consumers to pay attention to the things that they love and want to keep going. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. Go to arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com that's arrived with a Y. A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you.